0: You're listening to the Pimpcron Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 229 of the Pimpcron Warhammer Podcast. And we are brought to you today by our wonderful, beautiful, succulent, juicy, in my opinion, overripe Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show, as well as gamemat.eu and panhandle3d.com for all of your neoprene mats, STL files, 3D printed, terrain, all of that, engraved items. Those people are your go-to. It's event10 for gamemat.eu for 10% off and podcast10 for 10% off at panhandle3d.com. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, you can thank Fergie for not only the Tesseract mailbox, but also the real talk tonight. Him and I were discussing uh, his opinion of the current state of 40k in the Tesseract mailbox. And then that actually spilled over to how exactly am I so productive? How do I pull it off? What's the secret? What's the secret sauce? Pemkron, tell me how you do it. And I will tell you how I do it. It's really not magic. But hopefully it's inspiring to somebody that may be a little slump in their hobby, a little slump in their personal life, whatever. And it's a little more philosophical than some of our other topics, but I do enjoy talking about it. And it's a philosophy I obviously do live by. So with all of that said, there is no want want that or want that not this week. Um, I'll have a big one probably for next week. But uh, what have I been up to? Well, I played a simultaneous game of Brutal Space this week at the club. Instead of playing Warhammer, my friend Elijah and I played... Um, basically, the key, most interesting element of Brutal Space is you can play a fleet battle and you can play a ground battle at the exact same time. There, the board is three by three and three by three. Put them next to each other. That makes up a six by four board, doesn't it? It that's actually six by three for you trigonometrists out there. But the point is, is that it's perfect space for you to play Brutal Space and ground Brutal Space at the same time. And the neat thing is, it's called joint operations where um, there's 10 different ways that you you pick a pick your list and your mission for the space, pick your list and your mission for the ground. And then there's 10 different ways that the ground mission can influence the uh, space. or the space can influence the ground. And we played a game where he was playing his Imperials from uh, Star Wars, his Star Destroyers and all that. And I was playing the Star Trek The Next Generation crew. So I had the Enterprise and a bunch of other Starfleet vessels. And on the ground, I had Worf, Geordi, Data, Riker, and uh, Beverly Crusher. So while the space battle was happening out in space, the ground battle was happening. They were taking objectives and whatnot. But the twist there was that there is one objective in the middle, and it is a mine launcher. So Riker ran up first turn, and uh, basically every turn of the game, he launched mines. And what happened was is that um, he gets to place a mine using the mine lane rules on the space map. So the left side is where we decided the the planet that they were fighting on was on the left side of the board is right in the middle, though it has to be in the dead metal. And um, my left side had a what I'll call a medium sized ship and a small ship is all it had. And He overpowered me on that side, and he was beating me, but being that Riker every single turn was able to take cover against a hail of fire, he was being shot at every turn, he got down to one hit point twice, and Beverly kept healing him from the side, Um, he was able to launch mines, and the mines triggering was really what helped the uh, the left side hold up against Elijah's destroyers. Now, um, Elijah spent almost all of his points on one gigantic, um, it's called a a Dreadnought class ship. And he took an Imperial Star Destroyer, like the big one, and it was bigger than any of my ships. And um, the rest of his fleet was kind of small compared to that. But that destroyer was terrifying. So my Enterprise and everyone else had to really take a lot of time in the game Trying to avoid this Star Destroyer, stay on the other side of planets, stay in nebulas to get cover benefits and all that. And it was very, very fun. I believe I won 17 to 12, I believe. And um, it was just a just a great game. So that's what we did this week. And then I try to schedule one bro trip or one meetup with somebody that I play Warhammer with um every month in the winter when I have time. So this weekend, we went up to Patreon patron uh, Kojo's house, and he lives um, several hours away. But me and TJ and Derek and James all made a bro trip up there, stayed in a hotel. It was great. And we've known Kojo for four or five years now at this point, a long, long time. We met him at Shorehammer. We've got some mutual friends through Shorehammer, and he's got his group of friends that we know now. And once again, it's that fantastic networking through Shorehammer and through Warhammer in general that we've met so many fantastic people. And so we went up to Kojo's and he and another person that attends Shorehammer, Keith, they had come up with some narrative scenarios. We said, listen, no Ark of Omens nonsense, no stratagems, just your regular faction traits and all of that. So we decided not to do command points at all. It wasn't part of their narrative idea. And they wanted to kind of see what we thought about the narrative ideas and see how they played out and basically play test their narrative missions. And they were all very good, actually. I will say that all three of them, we, we were there for 12 hours at his house. And and uh, he's got a really nice uh, gaming space and everything, multiple tables. So we played a three-on-two battle. The first one was a narrative battle that Keith had had cooked up. And basically... We were designed to lose in the end. Like it was very, very against the odds for us. I was Grey Knights. T.J. was Grey Knights. Derek was Ultramarines, and James was Sisters of Battle. And they had built this like perimeter wall with gaps in it and razor wire in the along the long center line of the board. And every turn, wave after wave of berserkers and bloodletters and skull crushers and all of those different things. Um, hellhounds. All of those kept coming over the, the rampart, kind of like um, Starship Troopers, where it's just wave after wave, and they're shooting and, and trying to retreat tactically and all of that. They were trying to get past us, and we were trying to stop them for uh, ultimately five turns. Now, something that I really enjoy is that there was a lot of um, hidden aspects in all three of these narrative missions that we played, because for the players, we didn't know what was going to go on but they had it already programmed in the rules that every turn the corn people that are rushing towards this base get closer and closer kind of to illustrate the the tides and tides of more and more berserkers and bloodletters and it worked out really well it was pretty streamlined they tweaked a couple rules just to make things easier it worked out really well i really have no complaints Um, If you want to talk about the actual game design, and I'm only going to do it for this first one, that's all I'll I'll do it for because I don't want to belabor the topic, but um, they had some units that were easier to be shot and killed, but they were only one wound. They had some other ones that were more durable that had two wounds and that sort of thing, like the blood crushers and the. And the Berserkers and whatnot. So there was a lot of good choices if you had multi-damage weapons or single damage or high AP or whatever. There was a lot of good variation in choice to what you could do. There was also alternating wall and then gap, wall, gap, wall, gap. Well, the wall would hold them up quite a bit. But, of course, they would want to try to go through the hole in the wall. So we had to try to block up the hole in the wall with our forces. But then also, they're coming over the wall. But over the wall was enough of a deterrent. It took six inches out of their movement and their charge or whatever, it was enough to hold them back. Now, we probably had, by the end of the game, we probably had 30 units of corn come on the board and get shot off and all of that. Probably 30 units. And by the end of the game, we only allowed five through. Five units made it through. So to me, I know we did leave some through, but oh my god, that's, that's barely 10%, barely more than 10%. So I really think that was a at least a minor victory. I mean, probably a moderate victory for us. Clearly, not letting any through would be a major victory, but uh, it was very, very fun, and I think it was well put together. So I think he did he did well on that. The next one was that Kojo made up a, how should I say, It was simultaneous combat, which was very interesting that um, he kind of figured out how to do the simultaneous. I've heard people complain, and I've sometimes complained myself about how you activate your entire army for 15 minutes while the other person just kind of sits there and takes it and they activate their entire army. Well, a lot of people say, well, why don't we do I go, you go activation, simultaneous activation, things like that. And there's no real good answer for that. But Kojo actually came up with a pretty good system that each player going clockwise activates a unit in the movement phase. And then we keep cycling through. You've only got five seconds after the first the person before you starts activating that you can start activating. And it goes in that way. Then once all the units are activated, then it's the, uh, you know, shooting phase or whatever. But what he ended up doing was a shoot, move, psychic, shoot. And that might sound weird, but actually I took to it immediately. I didn't have any issue with it at all. Basically, you can either shoot in the first shooting phase before everyone moves or the second shooting phase after everyone moves, but you can't shoot in both. So sometimes you can move out of someone's way before they shoot you if they're going to shoot in the second phase, or sometimes you can shoot and then duck into cover. And it actually worked very, very well. Um, There was no Overwatch because essentially the second shoot phase would be your Overwatch phase once the enemy has moved up, and I'm probably not doing it justice as far as explaining it perfectly, but it worked out very, very well, and I enjoyed it. I'm not super up on the Horse Heresy series and things like that, but apparently it was a narrative mission where we were trying to find the key to Abaddon's ship, I think, and it ended up being, none of us knew this as players, but it ended up being this chaos, chaplain i forget what they're called um in the, in the center of the board and that player secretly had an objective to get him off the board and we were kind of blind as to what the objective even was so we had an action we could take if we did nothing else with the unit and we could search and once they got into line of sight of that zealot they could see that he had the key and that he was the key And then we could go after it. So he would silently show us this card that says, oh, he the zealot is the key. And you're like, ah, okay, now I know the objective, but you don't want to tell the other people because you don't want them to know if they haven't already figured it out. It was very interesting. I really enjoyed it. And um, unfortunately, uh, the first game, James just got battered all to hell for his his sisters. They got beat and beat and beat. His canonist was a real beat stick. She didn't fall until like the fifth turn, but there was mechanics for characters to come back. And then we got reinforcements as Terminators came down. Once we got wiped off, we got Terminator units that would deep strike in, and it was really cool. But um, James got beat pretty bad in the first game. He got it really up the butt. And then the second game, it just so happened it was randomly rolled where the Chaos guy wanted to go, and it ended up being opposite of James's corner, which, of course, James didn't know, so... Um, Some people might have an issue with that, but honestly, that is the randomness of of realism. I mean, a real situation, if we're treating this realistically, we would go in there not knowing what the objective is and we wouldn't know where the chaos guy's objective was. So it just so happened that James had the hardest time getting the objective and he never actually did get to it. Um, I actually managed to be able to get the objective and keep it. So technically I won, but. It was because the chaos guy moved closer to me trying to get to his exit. So it was very, very interesting. Um, I know a lot of people like more streamlined or competitive sort of scenarios. You know, it's the sort of thing you roll for in the book. But luckily, um James, TJ, Derek, and I, and of course Kojo and Keith were very casual and very narrative about it. So you're expecting the situation to not be necessarily balanced because as I've said before, no war is especially balanced you know it's going to be random and chaotic so the second one went really well as well i i like that whole mechanic and the third one ended up being slightly more of just a normal game but it was objectives that let me try to explain it simply objectives that were dangerous if you got close to them and you had to roll with the turn number or less to not trigger them and if if you did trigger them you're removed from the board so it was kind of a chicken sort of scenario where you didn't want to rush right up but the longer you wait the more likely your opponent's going to take the risk and it's when do you take the risk and i uh specifically took a necron list of the units that i don't usually take such as tomb blades and all of that triarch praetorians and um kojo and i Failed two of our roles for objectives. So uh, TJ and David ended up beating us three to two in the end. Whereas we would have tied if we made at least one of those and we would have won if we made both of them. But that's that's just the ropes. And once again, it was a random game. It was fun and it it, uh, turned some elements of the normal game on its head. So we had a blast. Uh, We had a a great time, although I did not doubt that we would with Keith and Kojo because we know them well. And they have the same mentality as us as far as casualness. Now, don't don't get me wrong, because uh, Heath and Kojo have both scored pretty darn well in the Highlander in tournaments. They can play competitively, but they can also tone it down. So um, Kojo also made us lunch. He made this fantastic brisket. It's like something I would have bought in some very fancy restaurant. And he cooked it for I don't know how many hours overnight and smoked it and I'm gonna get all the terminology wrong, but it was like brown sugar and and whatever color covered and it was fantastic. It was some of the best meat I've eaten like pretty much ever because <laughs> it really was good. So I'm I thank him very much for making that and hosting us and everything. And it's just, you know, it underscores all the nice people in this community, all the people we've met. And um, I was saying that on the ride home with um, Derek, TJ and James. It's just I am so grateful for this hobby because I've met so many nice people. Then after we left Kojo's, we were going to just go straight to the hotel was what we were expecting. It was about uh, 930 at night. We were there 12 hours at his house and we were just going to go to the hotel and go to sleep. But then uh, me and James, we had eaten lunch at Kojo's like. I don't know six hours prior or something like that and I had overeaten so I I was like stuffed but at this point I was like you know I could moderately eat and James was like yeah I could moderately eat so we went and found an American diner it was just of like a family diner that was nearby it was just whatever's closest it serves regular you know hamburgers fries whatever so Boy, did we end up making a crazy memory on this trip. Not only was it fun with Kojo and he cooked that fantastic meal and all of that, but then we had a real adventure and we were not expecting it. So we pull up to this family restaurant at 10 o'clock at night and the parking lot is packed. And we're like, we're all like, dude, this place is hopping. Why is this Why is this the scenario here on a Saturday night? Does it also have a bar or is it karaoke night? What's going on? So we walk in and the place is pretty full and it's full of pretty elderly people. You're talking about 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, very old people, but they're all dressed up real nice. And we're like, what is going on here? So we wait and wait and wait. And we wait for like five minutes and no one comes to seat us. No hostess or whatever. And the music is blaring from this banquet hall. So there's like a dining area between the bar and the banquet hall. And the banquet hall doors are open and they're blaring like doo-wop music. And it's it's so loud that I'm standing next to Derek and James and I can barely hear them. And I could not hear TJ at all standing there. So eventually we're like, okay, well, I'm going to go talk to the bartender or something. Because we're not getting service. So I, I go over there, and I talk to the bartender. I'm like, hey, can we please get seated? We're waiting. And she's like, what? And we kind of yelled back and forth. And she's like, her response is, you want to eat here? I'm like, yeah, it's a it's a restaurant, right? <laughs> like, Yes, we would like to eat here, please. So she said, I'll oh, just find a table. So we found a table, but we weren't really thinking at the time that we were sitting right in front of the open doors. So we sat down to eat and the banquet hall doors are open with this doo music blaring I could not hear from across the table I was sitting next to TJ I could hear TJ but Derek was across the table from me talking and I could not hear him the music was so incredibly loud so we had noticed when we first walked in you could go left and there was like another room or you could go right and that's where the entrance to the banquet hall and the bar and all that was or we were sitting to the right And I thought, well, you know what, when the waitress finally notices us, let's go in the other room to the left, because that way we're not right in front of the doors to this banquet hall. So while we're waiting for the waitress to show up, I'm looking in the banquet hall door and I'm just looking at the sea of people. It was probably 20, 30 people at that time. They were slowly trickling out because I think the event was mostly over. And that's when I saw it. I was like, guys, there's an Elvis impersonator in that room. And they're like, no way. (laughs) They both look and they start laughing. Because mingling about all these people is an Elvis impersonator. And he's like in his sixties. He he was an older guy, sixties, but he had the jet black hair and the and the you know, the suit on, the glittery suit, and he was in good shape, but you could tell he was an older guy. And we're like, What? What is going on here? This is such a random place. Meanwhile, music's still blaring. And as I'm watching He's randomly women are coming up to him. Elderly women are coming up to him and, and like grabbing and putting their arms around him. And they're slow dancing to music. And then after a few minutes, you know, they'll they'll part and then he'll go over to another woman and slow dance with them. And I'm like, this is just just odd. This is so peculiar. Right. So finally, the the waitress shows up and we're like, hey, um, you know, you mind if we move to the other room so we're not right in front of this banquet hall? And she's like, oh yeah, definitely, this is really loud. I'm like, okay, cool. So we we get up and we walk to the other room, and little did we know, because we're not familiar with the layout of this restaurant we've never been to, the banquet hall is like an L-shape. So we are actually entering the other entrance to the banquet hall. So I probably don't have to explain to you that it was even louder <laughs> in the second place we were sitting at but i'm like what is uh, this is just i was laughing because this is just so absurd this whole scenario is so absurd but but wait it does get more absurd trust me and after this story you're probably you may not believe me because it's so odd that it sounds like something uh a friend i used to have that would embellish all of his stories he was the one that's like Oh, yeah, and then, I, and then I shit my pants is how he ended every story because that was like some sort of embellishment that made it funny or cool, I guess. Well, you're going to think this is one of those stories, but I have three other people that can um, corroborate this story if you need proof. So now it's even louder where we're sitting, but we decided, well, I guess I'll just sit here. And the waitress comes up and she starts taking our order for drinks and she writes it down on a napkin. So it's this older lady shows up and writing all of our stuff on a napkin, which I found to be very odd. Don't they normally have like a pad or something like that? So she takes our our orders and and gets the drinks and all that. Another lady who speaks broken English, she's like Russian descent. Another elderly lady comes up and we're both yelling at each other from across the table because the music is so darn loud that she couldn't hear what we were saying and also... We had a hard time understanding her because of her her accent. So, we all placed our orders and I got a me and TJ got burgers and we both our burgers come with coleslaw and I just said, "Hey, you know, this could you just hold the coleslaw cuz I don't like coleslaw. I'm not going to eat it." And and she, I'm going to have to paraphrase here because we went back and forth several times. But she's like, "Uh, why don't you just take it?" <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, thank you. I really don't want it. I said, I'm just going to throw it away. I'm not going to eat it. And she's like, well, I don't know if I'll remember it or not. I'll try to remember. And I'm like, what? And of course, I, I didn't say that to her, but I'm thinking to myself, what on earth is going on here? This is like, This is like a parallel universe or something. I'm giving this lady my order, and she's just telling me if I'm lucky, she'll remember what my order is. It's just... So TJ chimed in and he's like, oh, by the way, uh, no Coke law for me either. And she kind of shrugs and she's like, I'll try to remember. We're like, okay. So she, she leaves again. And in the meantime, uh, this Elvis guy is watching. I can watch him now very easily. He goes from woman to woman. And these women are like acting like they're in love with him. And these older women are coming up and they're putting their, you know, how people slow dance at prom and they're all in love. They would put their arms around his neck and they'd put their their the side of their face on his bare chest and they would slow dance together. And then like they were rubbing his back, rubbing his lower back. I didn't actually see him like touch his butt necessarily, but he's in this he's in this Elvis leotard. And they're rubbing his back and, and slow dancing and then then they'd stop slow dancing and I saw him kiss at least two of them on the lips. I mean, this is this is very odd. This is almost like a furry convention for old people, because this is just mind blowing to me that this even exists. I knew Elvis Impersonators exist, whatever, but I had no idea this is how they acted at their at their uh their gatherings, right? So he's just going around one and they're taking pictures with him and they're all acting like he's the real Elvis. They're all infatuated with him, hanging on him, rubbing his back and kissing him on the mouth and all this. So finally our food arrives and I still got my coleslaw. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's fine. I guess. And TJ got two coleslaws. (laughs) So, so not only did, I get the coleslaw I didn't want. TJ got double the coleslaw he didn't want. And we're like, whatever, I guess. This place is just getting weirder by the minute. So I just start laughing. I just start laughing because the whole situation was so absurd between the noise and writing our our order down on a napkin. And she's like, I guess I'll remember your order. I don't know. And then the Elvis is like getting busy with all these people. It was just so odd to me. So I was, I got thinking, I was telling the guys, I was like, this Elvis impersonator thing is very weird to me. I get that they perform and they sing Elvis songs and all that, but this was like something sexual or something cult-like. And I told them, let me give you an example. I really, really like Ryan Reynolds. I think he's a good actor. I think he's funny. He's charming, right? He's, he's, I like a lot of his movies. I like Ryan Reynolds. If Ryan Reynolds died, And 40 years later, there's a Ryan Reynolds impersonator coming to my town. And they're like, hey, he looks just like Ryan Reynolds. He talks like him. He calls himself Ryan Reynolds. He knows all the Ryan Reynolds quotes from movies. And you can talk to him and have a meet and greet. I would be like, no, thanks, because it's not Ryan Reynolds. It's just some guy claiming he's Ryan Reynolds. It doesn't make any logical sense to me. But these people are like bumping and grinding on this Elvis. And I don't understand why, because it's not the real Elvis. It's like some sort of fantasy thing. And this is by, by far the longest I've ever spoken about Elvis on a Warhammer podcast. But then, oh wait, there's more. The Elvis comes over to the table next to us and things are starting to wind down. They actually turn down the music and we're eating our, our meal. And TJ and I are facing him, and Derek and James are back to him because they're round tables. And I just catch a glimpse, like a, a piece of his conversation with these people. He comes up, and he's talking to like five people, men and women. They're all older. And I catch a piece of his story, and he's like, Yeah, she stuck her finger up my ass and pulled it out and smelled her finger. And, and I'm like, there, there's no way I just heard that. There's, there's no, that's not the, and then I look over and TJ's got this expression of amusement and disgust on his face. And I, I was like, TJ, please tell me you heard that. And he's like, yes, yes, I did. And I'm like, and, and I desperately, my brain did not believe I just heard what I heard. And I'm like, did, did he say she put her finger up his butt and smelled it? And TJ's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And then by the time that happened, I heard another glimpse. I I caught a little snippet of their conversation from across the room. And he was like, oh, yeah, something about Hershey streak or something like that. I'm like, what is going on? This is we have went through some sort of weird portal into some other dimension where there's like Elvis sex cults. And people are going around paying to check Elvis's oil and just, dude, I don't know. I I just don't know. So he went around and molested his fans for a while longer, kissed a couple of them, and then eventually he started packing up and left. And we were all laughing so hard that this was just an absurd, just an absurd situation. And it was completely unexpected. But it makes for a really great memory with my friends. So I'm just sad that Kojo did not invite Elvis to his house to play Warhammer with us. Maybe fondle us a little. I don't know. But to end that story, I shit myself. No, I didn't really. But I'm not lying to you. The rest of the story is true. This morning, we uh, we met Kojo for breakfast and ate breakfast with him and had one last uh, uh, goodbye. You know, talked Warhammer mostly complained about warhammer you know how gamers are and uh then we came home and then i came home and recorded this podcast so there you go all right well i have rambled on far too long about fondling um checking elvis's oil just uh, too many re- elvis references for this podcast so let's get on to the next segment let's open the tesseract mailbox Oh, you know what time it is. It's time for the Tesseract Mailbox, where one of you write in to me. And let's see what we have this week. We have a message from Fergie Fergalicious Ferguson, (laughs) and he's a Patreon patron. His email is entitled, Not So Quiet Quitting 40k. He writes, Hey P, after listening to your most recent episode, I thought I'd add my own plus one to losing interest in 40k. I agree that the now constant updates and changes have left me burnt out on 40k. I think I had a grand total of two games before they released a new chapter approved, and I'll be damned if I'm buying another book. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, Ferg. Balance updates are definitely a good thing, but it seems like the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction with this deluge of content. I also remember the Psychic Awakening books from last edition that were quickly invalidated, so I don't know why anyone would invest in the new Arcs of Omen series. For the record, I'm in my 30s and have been playing 40k for almost 10 years. Does that count as old? I hope not, but there you go. I wish I could say I've left GW in my rearview mirror, but instead I've thrown all of my hobby time into the Lord of the Rings game, which I think I've previously told you is excellent. So I won't repeat myself. Keep up the good work, Fergie. And then he asked me a personal uh, question about life and we talked back and forth, forth a little back and forth. (laughs) We talked back and forth. Uh we talked back and forth a little bit and I ended up asking him uh to explain a little bit more what he thinks about Lord of the Rings. And he says Uh I've ended up putting all my hobby time into Lord of the Rings now. It just started as picking up a few models to paint for the nostalgia, but then I figured I'd see if people were still playing, and it turns out it's seen this resurgence in popularity here in London in recent years. Nothing close to 40k of course, but I'm still getting games easily. It's currently the only thing I'm playing, but I've kept all my old 40k stuff, about 4,000 points of Death Guard and 2,000 points of Admech, along with my modest pile of shame. I'm sure I'll dip back into it eventually, but for now all of my excitement is for painting, converting, and playing Lord of the Rings. I'm sure you've talked about this before, but could you do a segment on finding time for the hobby? I really don't know how you fit so much in with a family, etc. I haven't got kids and I already struggle. But I suppose you don't seem to watch much TV, so maybe that's the secret. Uh Aha. I'm always interested in hearing about the logistics behind Shorehammer, but that's more of a seasonal thing. Are you thinking of expanding it in the future? And then that was basically it. So let me try to remember all the things he said. First off, um, you are not the first person to tell me that they have jumped over to Lord of the Rings, which is kind of interesting to me because we've always like joked that Lord of the Rings was like the uh, the abandoned stepchild of GW where it was popular, but it didn't seem like anybody ever played it. It's like they bought the books, they bought the miniatures, and then they just proceeded to never, ever play that actual game, which is interesting to me. But uh, you're the second person to actually tell me that they have switched over to Lord of the Rings. I guess they are getting a resurgence. I know they still produce Lord of the Rings books, but they never give Lord of the Rings uh, the same PR as Warhammer. And I guess because the sales are lower, but I don't know. I think more that it's not their IP. I think it's more that they have whatever license from Lord of the Rings and the Tolkien estate and all that. And that's eventually going to run out one day. It might be to tomorrow. It might be a hundred years from now, but someday they're no longer going to have that. So I'm sure that all of their efforts usually go into their own IP so that they have that if all else fails. I agree with you with the Ark of Omens things. Um, I'm not buying that book and I don't play with those rules and I'm just I'm just not doing it. So that is that is the... Uh, the approach that i'm taking and a good portion of my gaming group is taking as well it's not that it's like the end of the world or anything like that but i'm just not buying yet another book matter of fact i never even bought the first book the um uh octarius whatever the the one that came out last year and um they're gonna be doing this every six months they've already declared it so by the time that the next one comes out 10th edition should probably be out they say like in july 10th edition's coming out, which is I'm like, oh, thank God. I can't wait to rebuy all of my codexes again. I cannot wait. And if you are in your 30s, Fergie, um, I am also in my 30s. So that definitely, definitely does not make you old. Now, if I were in my 20s and you were in my 30s, then yes, you would be old. If I was in my teens, you would be ancient. But no, no, in your 30s, as long as I, too, am in my 30s. Now, give me four more years or uh, three more years when I'm 40. And I'll be like, oh, you young whippersnapper, you're in your 30s. (laughs) Bless your heart is how I'm going to be. I think at age 40, my voice will finally drop. And I'd also have to say that I agree with you. You know, instead of just throwing away everything, instead of selling everything, just put it on a shelf if you have the space and you probably will come back to it. I mean, we all ebb and flow into and into and out of the game. And uh, the thing that I've seen time and time again with my friends is that some people will I'm getting rid of Games Workshop. I'm not playing that ever again. And they sell everything. And then in like two years, they're rebuying those same armies. And you know that is a losing endeavor. You know you're losing money on that. I definitely will keep your suggestion about talking about behind the scenes Shorehammer. Um, I will make sure to make notes of that in the next fall, in this fall, so that um, you can get some of the behind the scenes stuff. But I think I somewhat cover that. Sometimes. I certainly don't go into the uh wading through army lists or anything like that. I don't feel like that makes very good radio. And I am a bit limited in expanding for Shorehammer as far as space. So we are already in the largest hotel that has ballrooms in Ocean City, in the city that's near where I live. And I've already looked, trust me, I've looked everywhere. I, you know, I was comparing prices and things like that. And there's some hotels that might have one ballroom or something like that. Well, this hotel has one large ballroom, one medium ballroom, one uh, medium meeting room, and then they have like two smaller rooms as well. So they've got plenty of room for everything that we need. And right now we're just taking up one large ballroom, one medium ballroom, and the I say media meeting room, honestly, it's got like a, a capacity, a fire code capacity of like a hundred people. So it's actually a large meeting room and uh, that's all we're using right now. We've um, changed the floor plan around a little bit over the years because sometimes they rent out those stores space down in the, the ground floor. But um my next leap would be the convention center in Ocean City. Ocean City has a gigantic convention center. And I truly don't ever expect myself to be going there because I already looked into that convention center. And the price, (laughs) I got to tell you, the price for that convention center, if I wanted to rent one room in that and by room, I mean, it's a convention center room. It's gigantic. It's uh, I couldn't even begin to tell you the dimensions. Their smallest room is like 200 feet by 300 feet or something. I mean, it is a legitimate convention center. They have hot rod shows and gymnastics competitions and all sorts of stuff there. Um, Renting that for one day is basically the same amount of money that Shorehammer grosses for the weekend. So we would have to get four times larger and have no costs just to be housed there and that's just simply not going to happen it just totally is not i've already looked into all that stuff but the another problem with that is the convention center does not have any hotels attached to it and that is a big thing for me is i want people to be able to come right out of their room go right into the gaming areas and it's a casual comfortable area you know when you go to a convention center and i've been to many many convention centers that don't have apartments attached or i should say hotels attached Then you've got to think about trolleys. And of course, this is the beginning of December. So it's getting a bit chilly. Sometimes we have a little bit of snow in the beginning of December. And it's just not necessarily conducive to what I want to do and the vibe I want to do with my convention. So at the end of the day, it's got to be what my goal is. And my goal is casual, fun, you know, that sort of thing. Um, So I don't foresee us ever going to the convention center. Now, there are larger hotels about 35 minutes away in another city, but that is not in Ocean City. And Shorehammer is kind of known for being in Ocean City. There's plenty of places for uh, people to you know, go to bars. There's tons of restaurants, even in the off-season. There's tons of bars and restaurants. There's the beach. There's the boardwalk. And the hotel itself has a ton of amenities. It's got a bar and a pizza place and a coffee shop and a restaurant, all inside the hotel, and a spa, and an indoor pool, and an arcade. I mean, it is like a very nice place. So I don't foresee myself ever moving. What we will have to do is eventually max out on the space that we're using. Right now, we're using the majority of the space in the hotel. And when we eventually max out on space, then we're going to have to max out on efficiency of time usage per square inch of the table. What I mean by that is, is that the Highlander tables are used on Friday for the Danger Zone tournament. But the Danger Zone is only about a third of the size of the Highlander. So those two thirds of the other tables are kind of not used very much. They're used for pickup games, they're used for various things, but they're really not used for stuff 24 hours a day. So um, I'm going to have to start becoming more and more efficient. That may eventually mean, as we get larger, that we have to change table terrain, you know, like uh, set up the table terrain for one way for Thursday and Friday, and then change it over to Highlander setup for Saturday. And that is something I have always tried to avoid, because that's a real pain in the ass is what that is. And it's not something I really want to be doing in the middle of the convention. So, we're just going to have that's just one of those hurdles that you have to run over. Now to the big question. I'm just going to go ahead and make that the real talk for today and that way we have plenty of time to talk about it without having a 20-minute Tesseract mailbox. And away we go. Thank you for writing in Fergie. Now it's time for real talk with Pimp Cron. So, It's time for the real talk, and I think you just heard, unless you skipped ahead, you just heard me say that this is the second half of Fergie's Tesseract Mailbox question, and he was wondering how I do what I do and how I manage my time, because he says that I appear to be pretty productive, and he wants to know how I do it with children and a wife and all that. So I thought it would be really cool if I walked you through the average day in the life of Pimkron and give you... The tips that I have learned and maybe some direction into help, helping to make yourself more efficient and more productive in your personal time... And this is in no way trying to come off as I know it all. It's not trying to preach to you. It's not trying to say, oh, look, you're not doing good enough. Because God knows we are all in different situations. Some of you guys travel a ton. Some of you guys have um, children with special needs. Or some of you have your own special needs. Or some of you live with other people and it's not conducive to hobbying or whatever. Maybe your job is super demanding. You come home, you're exhausted. So don't go, don't listen to this segment being too hard on yourself. But I will say that everybody has room for improvement, whether it's a 1% improvement, or maybe it's a 100% improvement, you could find ways to make yourself more efficient and use your time more wisely and be more productive. So I don't care whether you're you know the president or whoever you do have at least a tiny amount of wiggle room that you can be more efficient with your time no matter how busy you are i guess we should get started um there are several things that are huge time sinks i do know that the average person watches a lot of media whether it be tv or youtube or whatever that is a huge 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 time sink what i normally do is uh, my family and i we don't even have tv we don't have we have a tv we own a tv but we don't have any cable we don't have any satellite we don't have anything like that so and and that was a conscious choice because i would rather be productive than just watching stuff my brother makes fun of us and calls us little house on the prairie and all of that because we live a very simple life my brother's the one with the you know iphone watch and the the security cameras with the special um, I would say Wi-Fi special server and he's got a special computer just to run a security system and then he gets notifications through his truck when his heat comes on and I'm just making stuff up but you get the point like he's very connected he's very very connected and he always laughs at me because you know we live in the country and we're just not very connected with stuff. So I'm not saying that watching TV or watching YouTube is the devil or anything like that, but it is a huge time sink that the same thing goes for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. If you actually get this, okay? you can go in the settings of your phone and see your power usage, or you can go through the parental control guides and pretty much every phone has parental controls. And you can go through it and you can set timers for your apps. I have a 30 minute timer for Facebook every day, 30 minutes. And that's all I do. And then once that goes off, of course, you can always extend it, yada, yada. You're an adult. But I mean, you shouldn't. Um, I was finding myself spending like an hour and a half on Facebook a day. And obviously, it wasn't all at the same time. It's five minutes here, 10 minutes there, whatever. But that's an hour and a half of my life. I'm never getting back. I've already said I'm in my 30s. I'm not getting younger here, people. So go on your phone and find out a way to see your usage and the time that you spend on the different apps. It's usually in the parental controls. And then most of the parental controls will allow you to set timers for stuff and it will lock you out of the program until you extend it or put in a code or whatever. And I'm telling you right now, that is a great way to limit the amount of time you're watching YouTube or on Facebook or whatever. I know some people that are on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Oh, God, help me if it's TikTok. TikTok every single day, all day. My mom is sending me stuff nonstop on these messenger apps. And uh, it's just nuts. And there's nothing wrong with it inherently. It's just that it's a huge waste of time. And we get into these habits, these really easily addictive habits. And, you know, don't feel bad about it because all these apps and everything, especially Facebook and the social media sites, are designed to get their hooks in you and soak up as much of your attention as possible for ad revenue or just addiction's sake so that you're more integrated in their service. So don't feel bad about it. I mean, you could feel guilty about, oh, I spent too much time on Facebook. No, there's there should be no emotion attached to that. It is designed to be a trap for your mind. So just limit it. It doesn't mean you got to give it up cold turkey. And I see people do all, that all the time. Oh, I'm quitting Facebook. And then like a year later or six months later, up, oh, they're back on. And what has helped? Nothing has really changed. So the best thing to do is just do it in moderation. Like that's what nutritionists and doctors say all the time. Most things in life are OK in moderation. You know, even like bad foods, if you had junk food once a week, you are not going to have ill effects from that. So it, it just goes to say, just do everything in moderation. But all of those online things and television is a huge time sink. So what do we do for that? Well, number one, I have YouTube premium so I can turn off the screen of my phone while I'm hobbying doing yard work, whatever. I think I mentioned that last week and I just listen to YouTube or podcasts. That's what I listen to in my free time, but I'm actively doing something. If you're watching a screen, you're not actively doing anything and it makes life a lot easier because you can do yard work or whatever and listen to that. So I won't belabor that topic anymore. But what TV do we watch? Well, My family and I have the habit, and we have done this ever since the children were little, we like to watch um, DVDs of things. We will watch um, Star Trek or whatever and slowly go through all the seasons of Star Trek. And then we watched, ironically, all the seasons of Little House on the Prairie and uh, Justice League, the cartoon, and things like that. But we don't watch a lot of it. About About four nights a week. We will sit down as a family and we will watch a single episode of Star Trek. That is 40 to 42 minutes long. That's that's about four times a week. I mean, if you think about that, that's really not that much. And my wife pops popcorn. We all sit on the couch together. Make sure everyone gets showers first. So you're in their pajamas and you sit there and snuggle with your kids and watch some Star Trek. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. It's one of my favorite things to do. And that's what we do. Now, uh, I watch maybe one episode or two episodes of Baki, a horrible, horrible, eventually I'm going to review it, one of the very worst mangas, cringeworthy to the max, I've ever seen. I watch that with my son, and we love to cringe at it because it's awful. So we watch one to two episodes of that a week, and they're 20 minutes apiece. And then me and my two oldest daughters will sit and watch Demon Slayer about once or twice a week, and that's about 20 minutes each. So you'll see that's not a whole lot. You know what I mean? Even if we watch Star Trek in one of those episodes, or one of those shows in one night, that's only an hour where versus like when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we came home. And while my family was never a movie family, because I know a lot of people will throw movies on and watch movies all weekend or whatever. My family was never like that. But the TV was on like 24 hours a day, even if no one was watching it. But we'd come home, we'd come home from school, we'd get our schoolwork done, and then we'd watch TV. And then we'd watch TV for an hour or two during the block of after-school programming, and then we'd go eat dinner, and then we'd watch more TV, and we, we weren't necessarily couch potatoes because we did do other things, I was into sports and all that, but we watched a heck of a lot of TV. And of course, you're talking about the 90s, so it was a little bit different of a time, but... Um, that's why when I had my own household, I was like, "Screw that! I'm not, I'm not watching a lot of TV." And you might say, even if I watched a Star Trek and a uh, a Demon Slayer in the same night, you're like, "Oh, that's an hour, Pim cron I'm like, "Well, number one, it's an hour sitting there with my family, and we're talking about the show and and stuff like that. We're bonding. So number one, that's that's got a dual purpose. I would not watch Demon Slayer if it weren't for my daughter, and I never even would have tried to see Baki if it weren't for my son. So." That's what that is. About once every two weeks, I will go over to my dad's house, my parents' house and watch football with my dad during football season. And then about once every two weeks on a separate day, I'll go over and watch a horror movie with my mom. And that's what I do with my parents. So those are my ways that I can spend time with the different family members. Oh, and once a week, I have a uh, date night with my wife. We go out to our favorite restaurant and then we come home, chill, talk, whatever. And, you know, usually my parents watch the kids that night and we're fortunate enough to have a a sitter once a once a week for the kids to spend the night. And that's basically it. So if you were to really add that up, hold on, let me do the math real quick. Okay, I'm back. So if you are talking that I will go see a movie with my mom every other week, uh, football with my dad every other week. And and even if we watch two Demon Slayers, which we often don't, and uh, two Bakis and whatever, you're only talking about seven hours of media a week maybe 8 depending on how long the football game runs. So if you look at it as a total number of hours in a week, right? If if you talk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week is 168 hours a week you have to exist. That's your maximum number of existence for that week. If you take out uh let's say 40 hours for work, you're left with 128 hours in the in the, in the whole week. And then let's say, let's just say, let's presume you get 8 hours of sleep every single night, right? That's another uh what 56 hours in the week that you're sleeping. So you're left with 72 hours for the week. That's 10 hours a day, bro. <laughs> like okay, so 72 hours, right? Let's let's say that I am watching it on average 8 hours a week. That leaves me 64 hours in the week to do stuff. 64 hours. I could get a whole I could get a whole full-time job in that time and work overtime. Now, I'm being ridiculous and hyperbolic because you gotta eat, you gotta take your kids to stuff. I mean, I spend a lot of time, I spend at least an hour, four nights a week, driving my children places, okay, to taekwondo and all that. So let's take out another four hours. Sixty hours a week I have to do something. Okay, well let's say taking time with the family, eating dinner and all that's another Hour every single night. Okay. So that's 53 hours a week. You have time to do whatever you want. Now, every marital situation is different. You know, you've got different responsibilities in your household, your roommates or whatever. They interfere, of course, right? But you've got 53 hours to do whatever you want. And if you're spending a bunch of time on YouTube, if you're spending a bunch of time on um whatever else netflix or whatever that's going to eat up a lot of your time and really what we're talking about here is the human brain is really what we're talking about because i've told my wife this before she loves to tell me i don't have time to do x y or z and i say well you have time for whatever you make the time for and that's exactly it have you ever noticed that um you have your set schedule you seem like you're busy all the time right But then you suddenly have to go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, crap, I got to go to the grocery store. So then you go. It takes an hour, hour and a half to go to the grocery store and you come back. How did you fit that in? It's because you made time for it. So the best combat against this is to actively limit the amount of time that you're consuming media and materials and doing frivolous things. Right. And maybe put some of that, put a timer on your phone and you go, "Okay, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock every single night, Nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, I'm going to do something to improve my life, whether it be exercise, read a book, write a book, do any of those things. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, right? I'm not a perfect person, but I, I am proud to say I am a pretty productive person. And this is not being preachy or anything like that. But that is where I find my time to work on brutality and shorthammer and all those things. For instance, the last couple weeks before work, Uh, I've been in a crunch trying to finish Brutal Space. I've got a ton of people on Facebook that are anxiously awaiting Brutal Space, and I have to keep buying test copies, and then I edit them, and then I have to buy the new copy that's edited so that I can edit it again, but then it takes like a week to two weeks for them to make it and send it to me. So it's like a long process, and I, I desperately don't want to have a subpar product. So before work, um, I usually don't have to be at work this time of year until like 830, let's say I wake up at seven. I set my alarm. I wake up at seven. I get up and I work on brutal space from seven to eight, seven to eight fifteen. I live close to work. And then I go to work. I come home from work. And of course, you've got dinner and you've got to drive the kids here and there. Right. But come. We're usually done. With all of our stuff, whether it be dinner or taekwondo or uh, watching Star Trek or whatever, we're usually done by nine o'clock. So then I set aside that time after you read books to the children and all that. From nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, I work on Brutal Space. So right there, right there, during the work week, I get 10 hours of working on Brutal Space every single week. And that's how I do it. So I've had a lot of people ask me, how do you do it? Blah, blah, blah. Even if you don't want to go through all the math of figuring out what you do and how much time you waste doing this or that, right? Because everyone's life is different and everyone's stress level is different. But if you could just take one hour a day, then that's seven hours a week or at least five hours a week on the weekdays that you're doing something that's improving your life or being productive or just doing something you don't want to do. And it was something that really, really hit me when I was a young person. And it's that stupid old adage, I'm sure you've heard of it, that if you take one step every day, you're 365 steps towards your goal at the end of the year. And that really, really struck me. So ever since then, I've tried to dedicate at least a small portion of every single day to doing something that I want to do for fun. And that ends up being stress relief for me. It ends up being a creative outlet for me and all of that. So there's really no magic behind it or anything like that. I think in the end, the best thing you can take from this is if you want to improve your efficiency, improve your productivity and make better use of your time, because remember, we're only on this planet for so long and then we're not here anymore. So you probably want to limit your time on media, period, whether it be uh, social media or anything that has your eyes glued to it. Right. You can keep listening to this podcast, listen to YouTube like I do or radio or whatever. But. You want to limit your time. You can very easily do that through apps. And um, I mean, apps on your phone, not even apps that you have to download, like the parental guideline controls on your phone. And then the other thing you want to do is carve out, and you can do it, I guarantee you, you can do it, carve out just a small amount of time every day to do something productive. So if it takes you a full week because you're so busy, it takes you a full week to paint a single model, that's fine. Paint... 10 minutes on it one night and you paint the face and then you paint the shirt the next night and then you paint the pants the next night and then the boots the next night. I mean, you're getting stuff done at the end of the week. You still have a model painted and at the end of the year, you'd have 52 models painted. So it definitely does line up and it's a real issue with our human brain that we just don't really realize time passing. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, look how old I am. I haven't done X, Y, or Z. I haven't done the things I wanted to do. It's very easy to get distracted. So, like I said, I'm not preaching to anybody. This is just my philosophy. And you can blame Fergie for asking me. And hopefully you guys can implement this. If you do and you you know, find that it helps you, then please let me know. I'd love to know that I positively impacted somebody. But that's the secret behind the Pimp cron. Thank you, Fergie, once again for the email. Thank you to GameMath.eu for supporting the show and Panhandle3D.com for supporting the show as well as as well as well as the beautiful sexy good smell and Patreon patrons. I'll see you next week people.